Welcome back, everybody, to the number one podcast in the sport where we like to have a little fun sometimes. So today, what I'm going to do, I think my commitment to myself is I said I asked for some questions. I've got about 18 or 19, but I think they kind of grouped together. So where they grouped together, I'll give credit to the people who asked them. And I'm just going to do this off the top, like no in-depth research. Whatever's in my head will come out. Um, don't know how that's going to work. So this one may never make it out. This may be like in the outtakes episode. But if this makes it out, then you know that it was halfway decent. But the reason is, why would I do this? Mainly because I think a lot of times I just kind of talk at you as an audience. And this is as close as you can have to like a live Q&A as possible. And, you know, just sort of try different textures for a change. Keep evolving the product and hopefully this will land properly. So question number one. And I've got to attribute this to Danny Watley and Kobe Vicker. Um, so guys, thank you for the question. And it is this, what does AJ do if he loses? And, you know, how does that affect his relationship with Matchroom? And then, you know, if he does decide to come back, would people still want to watch AJ? Would he be pay-per-view worthy? Yes or no? So there's a, there's a lot to unpick there. So number one, we need to know what's in this new DAZN deal. I think that would influence things a lot. So if he's guaranteed X million per fight, let's say, and it doesn't matter whether he wins or loses, he's just guaranteed X million per fight, why won't you just carry on and just ride out the contract and, you know, pick whoever you want to pick, you know, rematch Dillian, fight Derek. All these sorts of things become viable options, right? You just keep it UK-based, try and drive up the subscriber base for the zone that way. So I think that's an option. But you have to really know what's in the contract. If it's a success-based contract, so he loses 25% of his guarantee with every defeat, would you want to carry on? I don't know, because what well, Joshua's fighting once a year, let me see. 2019, he fought twice. Ruiz won, Ruiz two. 2020, he fought once, Pulev. 2021, he fought once, Usyk. And 2022, realistically, he's only going to fight once, right? Because whatever happens in this fight, he's going to need at least a month to recover. And then that means he's straight into camp for another fight in December. I don't know if that's possible. Now, is he under pressure from DAZN? Are DAZN saying, you need to fight twice this year, so you cannot lose? And would Joshua really want to be flogged like that? Because now that feels like servitude a bit. So would he really want to do that? Would he say, actually, do you know what? Let me just retire, focus on 258, elevating the next generation. And then he might go and do something else, maybe you know, act or whatever. But if he loses, that would be really tough for him because the way he was built up, the way he was managed, the way he was mollycoddled, 
the career he's had to date where they literally cleared every obstacle. You remember, they let him fight Vladimir Klitschko for the WBA belt. I didn't know you could fight for a belt when your last fight was a loss. Like, it's absolutely crazy the way that the rules were were bent for Joshua. He's just got the Ring Magazine belt on the line for Saturday. When you've been treated like a king because you're the cash cow, it'll be very hard to go back down to fighting guys like Joe Joyce. And that's no disrespect to Joe, by the way. It'll be very hard to go down to fighting guys like Daniel Dubois because you were on the brink of undisputed. Now, you know, sort of to, to focus on Danny's question, would he chase the big fights? Well, he didn't chase the big fights when, when there was something at stake. He didn't chase the big fights when the money and the legacy were at their highest. Would he chase them now? Now that he realizes that he's mortal? Would he? I don't know. I, I think if you, get, if you get beaten by Usyk, Fans will generally then accept that you'd have lost to Wild and you'd have lost to Fury. They'll realize you were not really top tier. And that's no disrespect to Usyk either, but that's the point I'm trying to make here. Joshua's not going to go from being number two in the heavyweight division to being number three. If he loses to Usyk, he goes down to like number eight. And the rankings should reflect that. Now, has he got it in him to climb his way up to the top? Because if he does... And he beats contender after contender and ends up fighting one of the, the top guys at heavyweight. His career looks completely different at that point. And maybe Joshua realizes that's what he needs to do. Maybe AJ's like, actually, I just need to beat all of these contenders. But mate, you're nearly 33 years old, so I don't know if that's the best solution. Could his body hold up for a four-year run? A four-year legacy run? where he goes, I want to beat everyone in my path to get those belts back and then unify. I don't know. My view has always been, if he didn't do it when they just offered him 50 mil guaranteed, I don't think he'll do it now. Because I don't see there being a lot of money. The Saudi thing is going to be loss-making. There's no question about that. This is going to be loss-making for Saudi Arabia. And yes, there's a, there's a sport-washing element to it, but they don't like losing money. And definitely not for no damn boxing either. So I just think if AJ loses, I think there'll be a period of reflection. I expect his team will change. His trainers will change. A lot of things will change. And then you'll hear the kind of mayor culpa. And he'll talk about he needs to go back to being him. That kid from Watford who's hungry and he might move into his mum's house for publicity. There'll be all of this stuff if he decides to come back after a defeat. There'll be, a re there'll be a reunion with Rob McCracken. All of this stuff will happen. And he'll, he'll build bridges and him and Fury will become friends and you'll see him training with Fury and Morecambe. He might even go and spar Wilder. All this stuff will happen on his redemption path. Which I think would be good, actually. I'd, I'd really look forward to that. But I don't know what all the Joshua fans would do if he lost, and especially if he got stopped. Like That's probably their nightmare scenario. So question two is from Danny Watley. And he asks, if Usyk wins, will he fight his IBF mandatory, which they're saying is between Zhang and Hergovic, right, on the undercard? And then will that sell as a pay-per-view worthy? That's a good question. So I think if Usyk wins, the only acceptable thing he can say is, I want Fury, I want Wilder. Nothing else should matter to Usyk right now. 
he may say, actually, do you know what? I need to go back to my country. And, you know, whatever you think about that war in Ukraine, it's clearly affecting him and his family. So you'd understand perfectly if he said, I don't want to box anymore. I'm more concerned about my, my nation, my people, my family. So that would be a perfectly acceptable way to bow out, actually. And if he did that, I think he walks into the Hall of Fame. And I know I've said a lot of negative stuff about Usyk, but if he did that, all four belts are cruiser, three of the four big ones at heavyweight, he's good. Would he fight his mandatory? He's probably the guy that would, but what would that do for him? You know, Hergovic is no Joshua. Hergovic has enough skill and enough about him to make it a hard night's work for someone like Usyk. Not saying he'd win, but it's a hard night's work. And at 35, do you really want a hard night's work for not that much money? Because where would the fight happen? Realistically, it would happen on DAZN. I don't think a UK broadcaster would touch that. It's not lucrative enough. So yeah, DAZN would get the global rights like they have for this one. So he'd fight on DAZN pay-per-view, wouldn't do anything for the numbers. And it would be a dark time for the heavyweight division because you'd have a load of guys fighting for these belts that we don't know about and we don't really care about. Kind of like when Klitschko had the belt. But this, this reiterates one of the problems in boxing. We should know when all the mandatories fall. Governing bodies should say, for this division, here's when our mandatory falls. And then boxing just has to work its way around that. And that date shouldn't move. I'd love that. If every sanctioning body said, right, on this date, the heavyweight title will be fought for. Yeah? Whoever has that belt needs to show up on that day. And if they can't show up on that day, they vacate the belt, it gets fought for. That would be incredible for boxing. If the idea was you can hold the belt, but on these dates you need to fight, as fans we would know, we'd be able to set things up. And then I'd even have substitutes ready in case someone goes, well, I'm injured in fight week. Make sure someone else can fight for that belt. If we can keep these belts moving, I think you make more money for boxers. So let's take, let's take the belts that Joshua's got, the IBF, the WBO, and the WBA. What, last three years? Who's fought for those? Ruiz, Pulev, Usyk. In the last three years. It's not good enough. That's genuinely not good enough. Right. Ruiz, not an all-time great. Pulev, washed up, was even washed up back then. Usyk, argument for Hall of Fame, fine. But that's not how these belts should be doing. Like we should be having seminal fights continu continuously. That's why you have four damn belts, surely. So I'm not, I'm not overly enthusiastic in the event that Usyk wins and he doesn't call out Wilder or Fury. They're the only fights we want to see him in. Anything else is just a waste of time. And we're hoping that that unification for Undisputed would override anything else. So the next question comes from Paul Altai. So thank you. And thanks to everyone for asking these. So Paul Altai says, right, you've got a young boxer and you've got to set them up for success in the future. So who do you pick as their trainer, their manager and their promoter? Oh God. Um, a lot of it depends because if you've got a big guy, it's a lot easier to promote. So it's harder to go wrong with, but let's just kind of just pick someone like a super mid you know, highly talented super mid. As a trainer, Ronnie Shields. Um, 
I want experience. I want a guy who's been there and done it. I want a guy who has a coachable philosophy. And that's really important. So what we've seen over time is guys like Virgil Hunter have shown that they can do it with the guy they had from a kid. Right? We see a lot of that. Um, you wonder what Enzo Calzaghi would have done with, for example, uh, Chris Eubank or Nigel Ben. Would he have had the same results? Not necessarily, but he had Joe from a kid. I think Enzo Macronelli was trained by his old man, wasn't he? His, his old man definitely boxed, so I don't know if that's the case. But you want someone who has a coachable style, and that means that anyone can kind of go through that process and be good. Ronnie Shields seems to have that, so I'd probably go with Ronnie Shields. Um, he has a really good gym, good culture, hard-working gym, so that's always a good place to learn and develop. Uh, Who would manage... This is tricky. Uh, so if he's UK based, I'd have someone like a Joe Gallagher, you know, someone who's prepared to bang the drum and have uncomfortable conversations in private and in public. Now, whether Joe would do it without training someone's a different matter, but someone with Joe's mindset. So you're probably looking at, I don't know, from America, someone like a Lou DiBella. And I don't know if we have a Lou DiBella equivalent here. Yeah, even Steve Goodwin. We've agreed, we've disagreed over the years, but I'll say this about Steve. Like Steve will Steve will make the right moves or the moves that he believes are right. And he operates with a with a reasonably good level of integrity. So someone like that, like a Joe or Steve, who will bang the drum when they need to. And then promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, Golden Boy, comfortably. I just think Golden Boy are so good at bringing talent along because they don't pad out records. Look at Virgil Ortiz. Record's not padded like it would have been if he was here. So they know when to step you up. They know when to put you under pressure. They know when to make you headline an event and they can find a show for you. So Golden Boy just seemed better at long-term talent development. Now, part of me says Al, but how involved is Al in the kind of day-to-day -day side? Al as a mentor, I know that's not part of the question, but I'd have Al Heyman as a mentor. But they'd be my three. Ronnie Shields, I'm going to go with Steve Goodwin because I have to. Ronnie Shields, Steve Goodwin because we've got to keep it UK based and Steve would manage. And as a promoter, Oscar. I just think Oscar's the best at developing. And he knows when to come out and say the right things about his fighter. Right? Don't forget what he did with Golden Boy. He, he turned Golden Boy into something. Um, probably a better hit rate than Matchroom, for being honest. But they never allowed those guys to go head to head, which I think would be a hell of a card. That that zone pay per view, if you could get Oscar versus Eddie, almost like what do they used to have? Survivor Series, where Eddie picks five, Oscar picks five, and their guys just fight each other. So next question is from Sweet Pugilism, and it's an interesting one actually. It's a take that I probably subscribe to as well, and he asks. Do I think that we are underrating AJ's performance in that first fight? And actually, AJ's performance should have scared Usyk into reaching another level. So, yeah, essentially, are we underrating AJ's performance in that fight? 100%. Look at the first three rounds, right? AJ looked the best that I've seen him look. Now, it came at a heavy price because he couldn't sustain it, but... When, when him and Usyk were just exchanging little little feints and little head movements, I was like, what's he doing? Oh, is this what he's trained for? 
hmm, okay, nice. And you have to give him his due. He he showed us something different that night. Um, he couldn't stick to it 100%, but at various points in that fight, you just see Joshua slip to his left and just shoot a right hand down. And we hadn't really seen that version of Joshua, that kind of punch picking, using his eyes a bit more. We hadn't seen that version of him. So as a Joshua performance, that was probably the best Joshua's look. Those first three or four rounds are probably the best he's ever looked. Not his most entertaining fight, because that's still Vlad. Maybe not his most controlled fight, because that might be Ruiz too. But in terms of looking at someone going, he looks like he knows what he's doing. Those first four rounds, 100%. I, I, I get where you're coming from. Would that have scared Usyk into another level? Usyk's got to be like, I need to stop this guy before he does anything to me. right? Because Usyk sustained a lot of punishment in that fight. And he doesn't need that at 35. The body's just not going to keep responding the way it normally has. And whether you subscribe to the idea that everyone's doping or not, even anabolics start to have a diminishing return on your performance over time. So the best solution is to stop Joshua. And I did it in my AJ preview episode, which may be before or after this one. Who knows? <laughs> you know, they're, they're all going to get recorded at the same time. But it's in there. And I just say, I'd like to see a, a sweeping Usyk left to the liver. I'd like to see him start chopping the body down, slowing AJ down. I'd like this to be a bit more tactical. The first one was just super athletic and it was nice, but this one, a bit more tactical. So I want to see AJ target parts of Usyk because they know each other now. So I want to see Joshua target certain parts. And I want to see Usyk target certain parts. And what I want both guys to do is, is to commit to their shots. Because Usyk didn't really commit to his punches until like probably the last three rounds of the fight. And then you started to see him really dish out some punishment. So if we can carry on in that vein, then I think we're in for a classic. But yeah, I think Joshua's performance in that fight, massively underrated. Um, yeah. I don't know if that version of Joshua would have lost to Andy Ruiz in the first fight, but it comes down to this point I keep making. Has he got the concentration to do that three minutes, 12 times? Has he got the energy mentally? You know, because if the mind is willing, I think the body will do it. And I think a lot of Joshua's stamina issues are just mental fatigue. So it's about whether he can actually do this or not. Right, follow-up question from Sweet Pugilism. And he asks... In that 10 to 20 seconds after Joshua dropped Ruiz and he went for the kill, is that the point where Joshua's career changed forever? And, you know, a follow-up question, you know, after that, did it kind of make him gun-shy? Now, I think that third round is really, really interesting because when you break that third round down, that was a fight Joshua was winning, right? And... You know, you could see the, the the crowd was subdued because it was like, I think Josh is going to do this by numbers. And you start to think at that point, Andy Ruiz is going to underachieve again. And so nothing's happened in the fight. Yeah, nothing's happened. And then it comes a point when you see it, Joshua just marches in behind. I think there's a one, two. Then there's a also jab, right uppercut, left hook. Right? And it's that left hook that puts Ruiz down. Ruiz is kind of sat there like, yeah, I'm okay. Didn't expect that, but okay. And I think it was more the surprise that Joshua steamed in because Joshua had shown no hint of doing that all fight. And so once he did that, it's almost like Ruiz was like, okay, he's going to come for me. 
I'm going to punch with him. And so they got into that firefight and Ruiz managed to land, I think it was the left hook on Joshua's right ear. And you saw him buckle. And once he buckled like that, he never got his legs back. And it was the biggest surprise was Ruiz didn't jump on him in the fourth, fifth and sixth round. Ruiz just was like, well, I got my two knockdowns and I'll just box it out. But the way Joshua stopped in that fight, and I get the point that, yeah, his legs had gone and he was, you know, in the equilibrium and all, all of this sort of stuff. But you see, when you get hit like that and you react that way, you will always react that way. You, your legs will always stiffen up. You know, you'll always look like Bambi on ice and people will start to target it. So if you're a trainer, you're like, we can't put him in that position again. And then it was like, Joshua, don't engage. Don't engage. Yeah, just stay on your jab, keep it long. So out of necessity, they couldn't put him in position where guys could throw those hooks at him because he was going to get hit over the ear. If you think about it, Ruiz dropped him by hitting him over the ear. Vlad dropped him by essentially hitting him on the temple. Right? That's where Vlad hit him. Vlad just hit him about the head. That's how he dropped him. So basically, any headshot to Joshua is, vulner is a big vulnerability for him. And I think his whole career, not necessarily that he's been gun shy, he doesn't want to get countered because that's when he knows he's most vulnerable. So he's trying to find these perfect moments where he can get his shots off and hopefully catch you the shot big enough that it weakens you and then he'll jump on you. But he's not prepared to blast his way in again like he did in that third round. But I feel he may have to do that against Usyk. Now, whether Usyk hits as hard as Ruiz, I don't know. Probably probably close like Ruiz isn't a concussive puncher it was just that Josh was vulnerable to to shots to the head and a lot of boxers are like that he he's not the only one that happened to David Price a lot it's just that it happened quicker for David than it did with Joshua you know their fights almost start to mirror each other if you really think about it you'd have David Price not committing trying to keep everything on the end of the jab and that happened after the Tony Thompson duology and after that he was never the same he never wanted to engage he never wanted to hurt people he wanted to win by being a technically good boxer Joshua went through that phase as well and look what it did for Price it did nothing for Price because you knew as soon as he got touched he was going to fall over and he did that a few times that scene where he's literally bent over the rope like he was trying to kiss Dave Caldwell like David Price went from Superman to nothing in the space of two Tony Thompson fights. And Tony Thompson wasn't a heavy puncher. Now, why that happens to big guys, I have no idea. I genuinely think is that big guys don't get hit enough that they can condition themselves psychologically to withstand that sort of punishment. So let's roll over to the question from Sensei Diaz. Once again, thank you. And it's this. Do UK fans have a propensity to dislike boxers with flashy styles? So I think the examples are used with James DeGale and Ben Whitaker. Then secondly, what's the difference in attitude between the United States and the United Kingdom fighters and fans? Right. So culturally, we don't like tall poppies in the UK. We, we don't, right? Our media doesn't like them. Like Paul Gascoigne got dragged a lot. You know, once Paul Gascoigne crossed over after Italian 90, he just became tabloid fodder, as did David Beckham. 
We just have a culture of tearing down larger than life characters. It's what we do. We did it with George Best as well. So when you see guys like Ben Whittaker, when you see guys like James the Gale, Prince Nassim Hamid, they get a hard time in the media, not because they're flashy. It's because they're confident and they're, they're brazen about it. Which I see, nothing, by the way, I see nothing wrong with this. If you can back up the things you say, I'm okay with that. It's when people are cocky and then they get sparked out and they don't learn. You know, but a kid like Ben Whitaker, dedicated, dedicated. Don't seem out of shape. Don't seem lazy. Don't see anything like that. Less so James DeGale. Now, let's compare those two. James, there's this idea that James was unorthodox or he was awkward because he's a Southpaw, right? And he likes to sort of loop his shots in. But he wasn't Pernell Whitaker type unorthodox. He wasn't Naz type unorthodox. Ben Whitaker's more of that ilk. A guy who could rewrite the rules of how to be a Southpaw. He has that. James, a bit more Sergio Martinez about him, I think. Like, just really, really good. Really, really good as a Southpaw. Could switch if he wanted to. Could do all of that stuff, but he was loud. And there's something, like I've said about boxing, boxing has a lot of insecure characters in it. So someone who's super confident scares them because they can't relate to it. They've never been confident in their whole life. And that's the root of it. That's the real issue. Because if you're achieving, you don't care what James is doing. You don't care what Ben's doing. But we've always had an issue because we always want to see them fall. And then we want to see them fall. We go, good, you got what you deserved. You're seeing it with Adrian Broner now. Ryan Garcia has mental health issues. Ah, oh, champ, get well soon. Support. Adrian Broner, people are talking about karma. He got what he deserved for being an arrogant dick. I think someone wrote to me on Twitter. Okay, but then when Broner's not being an arrogant dick, what happens? Boxing's got no characters anymore. Oh, they're all just media trained. Look at Joshua. Joshua's media trained. He's just telling us what he wants us to hear. So we need to make our minds up as fans, right? Do we want the renegades and the baggage that comes with the renegades? Personally, I do. A lot of people are scared of the baggage that comes with the renegades. Or do you want these guys who are good corporate citizens? And don't say you want someone to be both. You can't be both. Yet paradoxically, Mike Tyson's universally loved. So I don't necessarily think it's a, a style thing. I think it's a personality thing because Ryan Rhodes was flashy. But Ryan was never loud. Do you mean Ryan was never loud with it? He was kind of, I mean, moved a bit in silence relative to the others. Johnny was flashy, not the most entertaining, but Johnny was flashy when he needed to be. But he was quiet with it. Eubank was flashy and loud with it. People didn't like him. But I'm sure Nigel Ben was the guy who was really spending money on flash motors and stuff like that. But no one talks about that. So. I think I say all of that to say something very simple. Boxing fans don't know what the hell's going on in the sport. So they just form opinions based on their worldview. And a lot of it's driven by fear and insecurity. You know, I'm sure Nassim Hamed, Ben Whitaker, all these guys remind them of the kid at school who could show up, play football really well, get girlfriends whenever he wanted, never seemed to try anything. 
and they're out there grafting, begging and, you know, writing poems and stuff and still getting nothing. It's the culture of envy. Really, it's a culture of envy because all that should really matter is are you winning, yes or no? All the other stuff is just entertainment. But too many people get deep into it and they think that this whole boxing thing is a a validation of their life. Like, this is the one thing I should be right about. This is the one thing that no one can tell me anything about. And people just, they invest too much in boxing and it's not good for their mental health. So now the difference between UK fans in terms of mentality. Um, I think American fans appreciate the boxing side of it more and we appreciate the character side of it more. Although I think in the social media age, we're sort of coming together in this kind of messy middle where we're just picking out whatever we can to justify our point, right? So I hear people talk about things like he passes the eye test. I'm like, what the hell is a fucking eye test? What is the eye test? Oh, you saw someone box, so in your eyes they're good, but are you really qualified to make that assessment? That's the question. So people say that, and it's a way of validating, yeah, I think he's good because I saw him and therefore he's good. Um, so the eye test thing doesn't work for me. And then some people say, ah, but he did this, he got put down in sparring. And you find all these weird proxies. But... I think what I like about the Brits is they really get behind their guy. Like, shouts out to Stig and his fury power movement. Like, that stuff made no sense to me. Literally, a bunch of fucking weirdos just banded together backing fury. And they genuinely believed they were the reason he won. And I just, I loved it. I loved it because I was like, only in this country. So we have that weird mix of we take it super seriously, but we also don't. But now think about this. Chris Eubank Jr. and Conor Ben are going to fight each other at the O2. And that could have sold out the Emirates. That, wouldn't sell, that would not sell out the O2 in America. They wouldn't sell out the Barclays Center in America. Because American fans are like, this isn't good enough for me to get interested in. There's a, bit, there's a degree of snobbery around it. We will just get stuck in because we understand that it's a hell of an occasion. So I think there's that weird thing of we kind of look at US fans and go, oh, I wish we were sophisticated as they are when it comes to the actual in-ring stuff. And they look at us and go, those guys really show out for their fighters, no matter how bad they are, they show out. So I think there's that difference, but we're meeting somewhere in the middle now as we kind of bond and communicate a lot more. Right, got a question here from Coach Kev. I think this is a really good one and I don't even know what the answer is right now. But it's, to paraphrase, you see loads of guys looking amazing in the gym, hitting the bags, the pads, this, that, and the third. And they can never execute on fight night. Well, let me rephrase that. They can't do what they do in the gym on fight night. And why is that? There are loads of reasons for this, right? The problem you have in the boxing coaching community is we use the word bottle job a lot. And it's a weird one. Because... If the kid's got the balls to get punched in sparring, he's got the balls to get punched on fight night. He's not a bottle job. What happens a lot of times, if I'm being honest, a lot of people join a boxing club because they love the gym. The fighting's almost like a, an inconvenient price they have to pay for being part of that gym and for having status in the gym. Most lads that I know, they don't have aspirations to be a pro. They don't have aspirations to be an ABA champion. They want to be 
good boxers and they'll spar hard and they'll do all of this stuff. But if you say to them, mate, you're fighting on Saturday, they're like, ah, whatever. Because they just love the gym and they love the camaraderie and they love being around the people. They love being around their mates. They love being around the older heads. They love being around everyone in that gym. It's a safe haven for them. It's where they feel relaxed and comfortable. And when you're relaxed and comfortable, you do your best work. There's no question about that. So if I take you down to the TA Center in Grove Park and I say, right, you're boxing in the novice championships. You're like, I'm only doing it for you guys, but this isn't what I'm passionate about. And you, you see a lot of that where guys kind of mail it in, right? That's what you see. A lot of these guys just mail it in. They just love being in the gym. Now, there's another group of people who just can't handle fighting in front of people, right? They just can't. It gets to them. It just gets to them. And it always will. Maybe they're introverted by nature. They don't like being watched or seen, but they love being in the gym because no one's paying attention. And so they struggle to do that. So there's that, that, that's the second group of people. You get that rare breed who love it. And it's almost the opposite. They'll do just enough in sparring. They'll do just enough in training. Just enough. Just enough to be better than everyone else they could do more but they do just enough and they always look like they're coasting they always look like they're too laid back and they come alive on fight night just come alive on fight night i'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head we had a kid mo somali kid and he was like that mellow laid back lovely kid lovely young man but horrible fucker in the ring Another kid that I'm working with now, a young kid, Brian. Brian's such a nice guy, gregarious, outgoing. Even in the gym, he's nice, he's friendly. But he can be horrible too. Forearms, elbows when the fight comes because he loves that. That's what gets him excited. A lot of people just buzz for the fights. They don't want to train. So look, just get me as many fights as you can. Um, there was another kid, James Brushwood. He was like that. Couldn't box for Toffee, but loved to fight. I love that spirit, you know, those guys who are like, I just want to take someone's head off. And then the other guys who, if you get them in the right headspace, can do that. I always used to say about John Pilata, you really start priming him for a fight four weeks before the fight. And you just have in his thought how, how much fun he's going to have. You know, everyone's there to see him. They want to see JP knock someone out. They want to see JP hurt someone. You've got to prime him with all of that. And what happened when he started to train with other people, they didn't understand those cues. And I tried to warn people about this. So they didn't understand that to get him to execute, you have to work on him for weeks. And he's not the only boxer who's like this. And it's not weakness. It's just they think about so many different things that sometimes you just want them to focus on what's important. It's like, look, you need to go out there and do what you do this for. You love to entertain. You love being the focus of attention. Go out there and let them know you're the best. And you, you build that long enough and then he deliver a performance. But there are all of these elements that can contribute to it. You know, some people overachieve their big characters. Like I'm the sort of person, I used to, I'm not going to say I mailed in my training, but whenever the lights came on, I always wanted to play. In football, they say, who wants the ball when you're losing? And I'm that sort of guy, I just want the ball all the time. 
I want whatever it is, I want it. If there's pain to be dished out, I want it. If there's sacrifice to be dished out, I want it. I want to be right there in the trenches. That's my mindset. And a lot of guys have that mindset. But it's about whether Saturday night at a working men's club is your theatre or not. And for a lot of guys, it's not. But they go on to do amazing things elsewhere where they put themselves in even more uncomfortable positions. But in essence, that's what you have. You have a lot of guys who who don't really care about fighting. They just love the training. Then you have a load of guys who don't care about the training and love the fighting. And then you have everything in between. You know, like I've had lads come to the gym, learn how to box, have a couple of fights and realize I can go and beat up the kid who bullied me. I've had that a lot where I've had to sort of deal with those situations. Gyms are crazy things. The things you see in gyms, the stories you hear in gyms are just crazy because it's just a microcosm of the community in which your gym sits. Now, is there a way you can get people to be better at executing what they do in the gym on fight night? Yeah. Repetition. For me, it's key. It's boring. It's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not Instagram worthy. Repetition. You turn them into boxing robots. They shouldn't be thinking in that ring. And then you just, it's just the reps. Get through the weigh-in. You know how you want to make weight, all that sort of stuff. Being around other fighters and making sure their nervous energy doesn't impact you. And understanding that actually what you're feeling is excitement. You're not scared. You're excited. You've been hit before. It didn't affect you. This isn't going to affect you. And it's all of these things that come together. And it takes a little while to understand what they are. Because you'll hear me and loads of other people talk about walking into the gym on a Tuesday or a Thursday and being scared about what's about to happen. And that's what it feels like in a lot of situations. But once you can turn that around and call it excitement, you're like, ah, yeah, we're going to get at it. Then it's different. And you start bouncing off the walls and you start really, that's when you really immerse yourself in this thing we call boxing. So then Coach Kev asks me about my best sparring story. Uh, wow. Uh, Courtney Bennett smashing David Hayes' nose. That's, that, that, that put a smile on my face. So there's a time we went down to David's gym. It was a Wednesday evening. I can remember this was before he fought the Cobra. So this is, yeah, this has got to be like mid-2016, surely. And I can remember having to, I was coming back from Leeds. And I had to be there in time. I get the message. Yo, can, I mean, can Courtney come and do six rounds with David? So, okay, cool. So I get there. And obviously, Team Hay are there. And it's like, okay, so what level are we doing today? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Courtney can push David. We need to see, you know, where his capabilities are. So, yeah, yeah, he, feel free to, to push as hard as you want. And so they go at it. And David smashes Courtney with a right hand to the jaw. And I remember I, in my head, when I saw that punch flies, I was, that could knock him out. Shit. Courtney takes it. And inside I'm screaming. I'm like, fuck yeah. <sighs> and I'm 30 seconds later, Courtney slipped David's jab, boomed a straight right. Nose is disintegrated. David's held on for dear life. Like he's held on. And I'm like, oh my God. They separate and you can just see the left side of Courtney's t-shirt is just covered in blood. Like blood. 
and you know they carry on because at this point it's like okay just don't go for the nose again okay and so they they see it through and that was the first time david looked at me and went mate you're like you're like better than i thought you could be the british riddick bow if you carry on the way you are and that's one of my happiest moments as a coach because i'm like fuck david sees what i see so that's one of them um one that doesn't involve me was james the girl against frank bullioni and this was this before oh who was he i can't even remember who the girl was fighting was it eubank but james was coming back and like I think he was a bit, a little bit overweight, not too overweight. Bullioni was big and they spar. James plays with Frank. Smaller guy, but he plays with Frank. And all James kept shouting was, all of you lot think I'm done. All of you think I'm going to get beat. That's why you're here. You want to see me get beaten up. And James is just ranting and raving. And like, as he's hitting Bullioni, he's just shouting out to all of us watching. You never believed in me. Like, and you can see this is like this catharsis throughout the whole sparring. And Frank's like, what the hell's going on here? And I always remember that because of the intensity. Like James was like, everything came out. The box of tricks came out. And he was like, no one believes in me. Doesn't matter. I believe in me. Uh, I was like, wow, where's all this come from? So that, that, that was epic. And like, they really went at it. You know, Frank was heavy handed, but James was just getting out the way, peppering him, moving. He looked really, really good, actually. But you knew Father Time was catching up. Um, other sparring stories. Uh, go back to some of like the, the classics, man. Like I can remember there used to be a guy at the lodge called Anthony Small. Don't Google him. You'll get MI5 at your door in a heartbeat. So don't Google Anthony Small. If you know who he is, you know who he is. Now, here's the thing about Smallsy. Right. Anthony Small boxed as a pro, as a light middleweight. He's not a big guy. He's a slight guy, right? He's, he's slight. He's, but he's quite dense and he's strong. Now, if you've never been hit by Anthony Small, you might underestimate him. So I can remember once being in the changing room and there's just, we're all having a laugh and a joke. And I thought, let me just involve Anthony Small in the joke. I didn't even insult him. I just mentioned his name. And everyone stopped and went, I don't know if you should have done that, T. So why? Anthony Small gets changed. One well, mad head guard, man. Looked like one of those college wrestling head guards. And he was just sat in the ring waiting. Just waiting. And everyone that came in got slapped up. Everyone. So then it was my turn. Ooh. Anthony Small hit me with a left hook, right? It wasn't even to the head, by the way. It was, you know where the dead arm spot is on your right arm? He hit it there. And I thought someone had cut my arm off. I might have even looked down to go, have I still got my arm there? I've never felt anything like that before. I was like, what the hell? And I think I said to him, mate, is there padding in your gloves? And he put his arm out for me to touch. He's like, yeah. Another went to touch it. Another left hook. Boom. And he's like, I'm going to hit you with three left hooks. I'm like, nah, don't be stupid. Bang, bang, bang. And he was just taking the piss. And I learned from then on, man, leave Anthony Smalls the F alone. When you saw him sat in that ring waiting, you knew that discipline was going to get meted out. And that wasn't a one-off. 
uh, other stories, stuff that I've enjoyed. Uh, back in the day, man, jumping in with Ryan Rose and I was a student and getting my ass handed to me, that wasn't a good look either. Uh, sparring Dom, Ack and Lidy, they're my favourites, actually. Big Dom, most fun I've had in the ring. That is the most fun I've had in the ring. Like, like Dom would be like, I know what you're going to do. Like, he just trash talk. He's like, look, I know you're looking for that uppercut. And he'd be like, I'm going to let you try, but you know what's coming next. And you, like, it's literally, you do three rounds with him and it's just nine minutes of just nonstop chat. And it's because he's a funny guy. And like, I like to think I'm funny. And you used to have those rounds, but it hurt. On both sides, it hurt. But you learned that respect. Um, who else? Like we had some monsters in that gym back in the day, man. Even Linton, man. When Linton just silenced me with a body shot once. So shouts out to him. Like, you know, I tried to tough it out, but he's like, I know I got you with that one. I'm like, listen, no comment. You know what I mean, like, so the, the loads of these stories that you see. Um, one, what's another one I enjoyed? Just saw on Brian Jennings. Yeah. Um, I've seen Hay and Brian Jennings. I've seen Brian Jennings and Parker. And they're all good, but they're not good for the backstory. They're just really engrossing sparring sessions where no one really gets knocked out, but they just go at it and they talk shit to each other all the time. You know, but in terms of like a sparring event, I, I wish I'd been around for James Tony sparring. Like you watch all the old videos of him. I think it's with Lehman Brewster. Uh, there's, I think there's one with Danny Green. And you look and you go, wow, imagine being there for that. And imagine getting called in for that. Because as out of shape as Tony was, it just looked like he could dig. Like his power carried up the weights. And that would have been a really scary proposition. John Mitchell asks, how far can Boxer go? Ah, wow. So there, there are a lot of caveats to this. If none of the MTK contagion touches Boxer then I think Boxer will be there for as long as they want to be. It may rebrand, but that machine that we call Boxer at the moment will be there for a while. And there's a reason. Ben's got a lot of wise old men that sit behind him and offer him that kind of cover fire. So a lot of these deals do get done, but he's got such a good advisory team around behind the scenes that he just now needs to grow into that that front man role. And I know he likes to say stuff like, I don't want to really do my business in public, but you have to now. Eddie's moved the role of a promoter into that space where you have to be the voice of the franchise. And I think he's learning that because Ben, Ben's not a boxing, boxing guy in the same way that Eddie is. Ben is a guy that's come into boxing. And yes, he knows a lot because he's done a lot in a short space of time. But there's still that nuance of being able to understand the heartbeat and the, the moral conscience of where the sport's at, where the fans are at, and how you tap into that. How do I elicit those emotional responses in you that are going to make you want to watch the fight or want to talk about it? So it's not just a, a factual discussion about this is what we did. It's that ability to pull on your emotions that I think he's going to learn over time. But if you look at the stable, the stable's a bit threadbare. And I expected it would be in the first year, right? Until we know what DAZN's doing in the UK, it's very hard for those guys to jump ship. But a lot of them want to jump ship. 
I think if you ask Shane McGuigan, he'd rather have all of his guys on one platform. I think it's just better for him in terms of the raw economics of it, um, certainty of planning, all of that. And I think it's true for most trainers. I think Joe, if Joe could do it, he'd have all of his guys on, on Sky too. As long as Sky has that pay-per-view machine, people will want it. The, the biggest existential risk is that people turn to a DAZN model. Because remember, Sky Sports isn't cheap. So do you then just go to DAZN? This is, and that's where it's tricky. But in terms of boxer promoting events, at the moment what they're doing I think is the right thing. You have a few semi-events and then you just have some really solid Saturday night boxing shows where you learn, you iron out all the kinks, make your mistakes now before you go for the big fight. So I think there's longevity in Boxer because I think Sky want there to be longevity and Sky want to prove that they made Eddie Hearn and this is the only way you can do it by making Ben Shalom. No, if I were to advise, what would I say? Keep signing the best youngsters. Keep signing the best youngsters, keep them happy. But understand why Golden Boy have been successful. You challenge your guys at the right time. I think Sky have just signed Jack Massey. Eh, subject to, you know, <laughs> a few bumps in the road. And if that's the case, then look, you're going to get Jack Massey versus Chris Billum-Smith. So you're going to get the rerun of the 2013 ABA final. You don't have to sell that fight. Chris will, Chris will say that. Jack beat me that time. We're different men now. Let's see what happens. But they have stars that should mesh real functional solid fundamentals and heavy-handed enough to hurt each other so as long as sky keep making those kinds of fights boxers should be okay but then we're talking about when are people going to fight for world titles how are you going to position them for the world titles when are we going to get those seminal fights those true boxing events i don't think they're in a rush nor should they be you know they need to build those and when they do like you saw with Chamberlain versus Billum Smith, the fans go home happy. The fans go home delighted. So next up is a question from Daniel Desmond, and it's this. If you took AJ, uh, Alexander Usyk, Deontay Wilder, and Tyson Fury in a round-robin tournament, who comes out on top? And, God, this is tricky. Uh, bear with me. I'm trying to work out the logic in this. So everyone's got to fight each other, right? Does that is that six fights? I think it's about six fights. If I'm wrong on that, apologies. But I think it's six fights. And right, if it's six fights, let's break it down. Usyk wins one, loses two. I think Usyk loses to Fury. I think Usyk loses to Wilder. Different ways. Fury on points, Wilder by stoppage. Just my opinion. Don't shoot me down on this. I think Joshua wins one, and that's probably Fury. I think Joshua may beat Fury. Stars make fights. And that means Fury wins two. He beats Usyk and he beats Wilder. That means Wilder wins two. He beats Joshua, in my opinion, and he beats Usyk. So I think at the top of it, you'd end up with Fury and Wilder. Fury beats Wilder, so Fury ends up on top, Wilder second. Usyk third, Joshua fourth, would be my guess. But it's a big if, right? Because if it turns out Joshua's not Fury's nemesis and Joshua wins none 
Fury wins three, so he's comfortably on top. And look, that may change. Like, let's say Usyk stops Joshua on Saturday, then I might have to revise it and say, I think Usyk stops Wilder too. So yeah, but as things stand, um, two wins each for Fury and Wilder, one win each for Usyk and Joshua would be how I'd do it. Now, if I've, if I've miscalculated the number of fights that they should be, feel free to correct me, but that would be my answer. Um, but credit to Usyk for even being in that discussion because look, there are other people that should have been like Tony Yoka who choked. Remember when Gerald Washington was meant to be the next killer out of America and he couldn't deliver. He's now just a sparring partner. Same with Malik Scott. You know, A guy I'd like to see maybe mix it at that level. Let's see what Martin Bacoli can do. After what he did to Yoka, put him in with like a Hergovic. Let's find out what a fully focused and hungry Bacoli can do. So this will be a quick one from West Midlands Boxing. Does Anthony Joshua have the gas tank to set a, a good pace for 12 rounds against Usyk? No. And I don't think it's necessarily a physical thing. I think it's just a mental thing. When Usyk ups the, the work rate, it's about how calm you can stay. Do you remember how calm Mayweather stayed against Pacquiao? And Pacquiao has Mayweather on work rate all day, every day. But Floyd was able to stay calm and just stick to his fundamentals. Jab, create distance. Jab, create distance again. When there was an opening, you took it. You didn't wait. You didn't hesitate. And then he started to create his own openings and set his own traps. And I don't think Joshua can do that because he hasn't got the clarity of mind to do that. And without that clarity of mind, you're always going to be in a highly stressful situation. I don't know if, if that's energy sapping over 12 rounds. It seems to be for him. People say it's the muscle mass he carries. But he's been able to do 12 rounds when, when it's been comfortable, right? And I don't mean like in terms of work rate. When it's been psychologically comfortable, Joshua can do the rounds. He can't do the rounds when he hasn't got time to think and he's in situations that he can't understand. Then he starts to stress out and then he, that's when he burns his tank out. So I think it's a mixture of physiological and mental with him. And I don't think he's got, he hasn't got it in him to keep up with Usyk for 12 rounds. So let's head over to Mohamed Kasim who asks, he asked two questions. So one, what needs to change to GB boxing? And two, what makes a good or a bad boxing gym or amateur boxing gym to be precise? What needs to change to GB? Uh, so I speak as someone who's been through the recruitment process, mm, which I found interesting. So I aced the first interview, then I was told, nah, they're just not going to let you in, right? <laughs> they know who you are. They're not going to let you in. And here's what I identified. They do too many of the wrong things. So there's no point in having your super heavyweights do 45 minutes of intense cardio work, right? For essentially nine minutes of work. Like you'd have to demonstrate the, the additional benefit versus the increased injury risk. So the first thing that needs to change is they need to find training protocols that reduce injury risk. And that's talking about things like increasing general athletic capability, right? So you don't necessarily always have to be punching. And this is something I believe in. Boxers punch too much. And that sounds weird, I know. But the problem with punching too much is your ego kicks in and then you start punching harder than you need to be punching. And there's no way of saying, look, just hit the bag at 50%. Because no one really knows what 50% feels like. And you get insecure. By hitting the bag at 100%, just causes long-term damage to your wrists, elbows, shoulders, hips, everything. 
So you, you definitely need less of that. You need more of an education piece around the philosophy of boxing and what you should be doing and why. And that will make more independent decision makers. I think you need to bring in some of those old heads like Crawford Ashley. I think you need to bring in some of those old heads like Carl Froch. Um, even a Ryan Rhodes who's in Sheffield, Glyn Rhodes, some of these old guys who, who understand the art of boxing. Get someone like Joe in who understands the art of conditioning, guys. You know, like, look at Joe's guys. Imagine you gave Joe the creme de la creme of this country and said, mate, we need them to be fit enough for three rounds to throw this many one-twos. Joe nailed that in a heartbeat. So someone like that, you need, you need a brains trust that's not just McCracken because McCracken has a very singular view of boxing. We saw it with Howard Eastman, Carl Froch, and Anthony Joshua. It doesn't leave a lot of latitude for improvisation. That's why Ben Whitaker and Pat McCormack were anomalies in the system. Most of the other guys are just bread and butter boxing. But it's, those are the sorts of elements. So my big focuses are on boxing education and injury prevention. A lot of people leave GB broken. And then it's really about how do you train people to be high work rate fighters. High work rate fighters, good decision makers with the strength to put dents in opponents. That's really it. Like there, there are all sorts of other things you can do around culture and so on and so forth. Yeah. But essentially you fix those things, you'll fix GB boxing. Uh, what makes a good or bad amateur gym? So for me, red flags in an amateur gym. No one's, no one's refurbed or no one's fixed anything in years. When I see stuff hanging and it's broken and it's this and it's that, I'm like, no one loves this place. The floor's dirty. I get suspicious. Ring canvas hasn't been cleaned. I get suspicious. People spitting on the floor. People spitting on the canvas. You know, all those sorts of things. People showing up in dirty kit is a red flag to me. Uh, what are the other red flags? No respect for the coaches. No respect for the institution. No togetherness. So for me, like after a good training session in an amateur gym, there should be about half an hour where no one leaves the changing room and it's just a lot of trash talk and laughing and joking. A minimum of half an hour of that. If everyone's just leaving, then you know you got something wrong. So they're all red flags to me. Uh, so the green flags would be all the opposite of that. And it's one of the reasons I love Fitzroy Lodge. You walk into Fitzroy Lodge, you're like, wow, this place is clean, it's pristine, everything's organized. People are friendly. You can laugh and joke, you can talk, we care about your story. All of these things, it's a nice place to be. It's a nice place to be. It makes you proud. You're like, I belong to something. And I felt that way since 2003. Um, I felt the same about Double Jab. Always clean, always organized, always precise. A little bit more rowdy, but the average age was younger, so it's understandable. But broadly speaking, everyone loved that club. You talk to the guys who were there now, they miss that. They miss those days. We made something special happen there. And I've been to other fantastic gyms over the course of time. Um, I remember Empire in Bristol, back when it was in the church. Uh, Sam Smith's gym up in Leeds was really good as well. Uh, look, even Sam Mullins Churchill's gym's nice. Uh, yeah, there were loads of really nice gyms. I love what they've done with the New Dale Youth. There are loads of nice gyms. Stonebridge is lovely as well. There are loads of lovely gyms, but there are loads of 
shit spots because guys don't understand how important standards are in driving your culture and your performance in the ring. If the guys at the top don't care how clean the gym is, they're probably not going to care whether the gloves are in good quality or not. And people like to say it just adds to the charm, maybe, but it doesn't aid performance. So they would be my red and green flags. I just, yeah. And more importantly, people who run gyms should understand when someone's toxic for your gym, just get rid of them immediately. It's the cheapest loss you'll take. All right, question from Dougie Doodle. What hell of a name. <laughs> How does Conor Ben beat Chris Eubank Jr.? Ooh. I think he's got to fight like his old man did against Gerald McClellan. Like, I can't say there are parallels here because obviously both guys are from extreme privilege. But you've got one guy who thought he was going to run through the other guy and actually got a lot of joy early on in the early part of the fight. But Nigel Ben showed resilience to come back into that fight and then start inflicting damage on Gerald McClellan. And we know what happened at the end of that fight, which was tragic. But that's what Conor Ben's going to need. He's going to need that mindset of, even if you punch me through the ropes, I'm going to get up and keep fighting. If he can do that, and Eubank Jr. exhausts his bag of tricks, Chris might just think, oh God, I don't want to have 12 rounds of this. And then it gets difficult for him. But then Conor Ben's spirit starts to rise. The crowd gets behind Conor Ben. It's a completely different fight. But I don't think there's much you can do tactically because I don't know if Conor can execute those sort of precise tactical game plans. I think he's just got to go out there and it's jabs, it's hooks, it's uppercuts. He should be able to punch from any position. And I think that, that will keep Eubank focused enough. But then Eubank can do that too. And if Eubank were to do that, then it might be horrible for Connor. But I want it to be competitive. I don't know how or why, but I just want this fight to be competitive. And so I will be rooting for Connor Ben to an extent, and I'd like to see him do his fair share of damage. But I just, as much as you can bring the weight down, like the in-ring weight, there'll be a massive disparity, I suspect. You know, they said Conor Ben weighed 170 pounds against uh, Van Heerden. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. Um, they tried to say the same thing about Danny Garcia when he used to fight at 140. He can rehydrate to 170. I don't buy that. That wouldn't be healthy at all. So let's see what actually does happen. Um, yeah, I think Conor's best bet is that kind of like box like his old man. For, for as long as he can, you know. And then that way he keeps Eubank occupied enough that Eubank can't overthink anything. And so Eubank's got to react in the moment, which creates more openings. So, I, yeah, I think it's possible. I'll be intrigued to see if after Denzel has his fight, whether they they did do any work with Denzel even before that. That will be the test of how serious they take it, because I know he's working with Linus Adofi at the moment. But if you saw Conor Ben and Denzel Bentley, then you know that Conor's willing to put himself in harm's way. That'll be my test at the moment. So we've got a non-boxing question from Yuri. And uh, let me paraphrase it. Why didn't the Macho Man get the same push that Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior did in the late 80s, early 90s? Um, despite being more charismatic, delivering a better promo and being a better in-ring performer than the aforementioned two. 
And was this down to the Stephanie McMahon rumours? There's a lot to unpick there. So we've got to really talk about the Stephanie McMahon rumours. So the allegation around that is that Macho Man slept with Stephanie McMahon when she was underage. And that's why he's never been inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's why he never gets mentioned in the WWE, all of that stuff. Vince McMahon took that personally. Despite Randy Savage actually being one of his most loyal soldiers. Now, why didn't he get the push? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead the Roddy Piper defense here. I think Macho Man draws as much money with the belt as he does without the belt. So actually, giving him the belt doesn't elevate him. Because, like, they normally gave the belt to the babyface. So Hulk Hogan. Hogan must pose and all this stuff, right? Every event had to end with Hulk Hogan with the belt around his waist. And they tried to build the Ultimate Warrior into the second Hulk Hogan. But Macho Man had heel-like tendencies as well. Elizabeth? Let's get out of here. Oh, yeah. Like, he was just... It was a, I think that would have been a bit too much as a as a face of the company. But I'm a big Randy Savage fan. I feel the same way Yuri does. He deserved a push. But I think the same way about Ravishing Rick Rude. I don't believe Ravishing Rick Rude was ever given the platform he deserved. What, what a great character. Now, only when you get older do you realize what a great character he was. I thought the Million Dollar Man was one of the great heels. Uh, Mr. Perfect as well. And they had the great vignettes that accompanied that. So there are loads of guys that never got the push because Hogan was drawing so much money they couldn't take the belt off Hogan. And if I remember correctly, when they gave Warrior the belt, like, house show takings were down. Because, what was it, Hogan, Hogan loses to Warrior and then kind of takes a break. And then it all goes a bit south. And like, you're Hogan, you got to come back. And then Hulk has the thing with Earthquake. And then the following year, it's Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter. Then the money starts coming back. Then it was a steroid trial. So Ultimate Warrior was probably a disaster. Not a great worker, not a great talker. Was just a, someone the fans loved seeing as an underdog. A bit like Usyk, actually. You know, we all talk about how we want Usyk to be the main guy, but when it comes down to it, Usyk won't generate money. He doesn't draw money. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of that in there. But massive Randy Savage fan, uh, massive Rick Rude fan, massive Mr. Perfect fan, massive Million Dollar Man fan. Like, those guys should have all got a push. They all deserved it. But we wasted time just watching Hogan with his dead leg drop and his fake hulking up, which never worked. I once tried that in a fight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Question from Colin Middlemass and it's around gloves. So why do small hall promoters just stick with the same basic brands of gloves like VIP, Lonsdale, etc.? Um, Mainly because I don't think Rival care enough about them. I don't think Grant care enough about them. I don't think Winning care enough about them. So they kind of leverage the relationships they have. So you can get gloves off Lonsdale. Um, you know, there's still questions around who actually owns Lonsdale, so let's not talk about that. You can get gloves of VIP because it's just good brand awareness and it builds good relationships with promoters and ultimately boxers. And look, if you're going to use geezers, all these gloves are basically made in the same factory in Sialkot in Pakistan, right? They just specify different sort of, you know, do you get the thick latex or the thin latex? 
I think the board should mandate a standard glove. Now, Empire have got, uh, yeah, Empire Pro Tape have got their glove. I think it's been approved by the board. Is that the glove to use? I've never used them, so I don't know. But yeah, I think if you had one standard brand of glove across UK boxing, what that would do is it would reduce the need to buy other brands. And I think fighters would then find that their performances are more consistent. You don't realize the difference it makes. Like when you're hitting the bag in 16 ounce gloves, you can change to 12s and punches that you're kind of landing properly before, you're not landing the same. So there's a there's a recalibration period required. And actually a lot of hand injuries in boxing are caused by fighters changing gloves because mentally they haven't been able to recalibrate the distance, the force distribution, etc. And so you get injured. Um, question from Jamie Ingleby, and this is around you know, developing boxers. So he asks, is there value in decamping to the United States for a bit to build out your career and, you know, sort of taking new experiences, learn some independence and stuff? Is there value in that? And if so, why don't people do it? No. And he makes reference to the McCormack twins. Are they twins? I think they are twins. They'd get a lot of value from being out in America, which I think is 100% true. But let's now zero in on, on why that's hard. So there's a kid, Steed Woodall, who did this. And I think he went out to Florida and boxed for a little while. But what happens invariably is you don't build enough of a advocacy base in the United Kingdom. So if you're going to go to America, you need people over here sharing your fight clips. You need people over here talking about you, flagging you to promoters. So you definitely need a UK operation here that would promote you while you're out there. And I think it's viable in that sense. But you'd also have to either be sparring guys who we know like Jack Cattrall did or fighting guys that we know which is also high risk because they have no interest in helping you develop so I think to spend a few months in America sparring learning that culture learning how you can develop better based on what you've seen there I think that's valuable but I don't know about building your career there simply because it just looks like a hard slog they're all good as well. Everyone's out there trying to make a hustle and you're just a standard Brit to them. And then you come back here and people go, well, he went to America. He didn't believe in us. So now it's hard. Like Steed Woodall should be televised, but he hasn't been televised because no one's got behind him. I know Dean White was working with him. I don't know if that's still happening, but we haven't seen Steed Woodall. And Steed Woodall was better than Ted Cheeseman when they were both coming through the system. So when do we get to see Steve Woodall? I don't know if we will. So it's a big risk. Ola Falabi did the same thing. And look what happened to him. They just wouldn't touch him in this country. End up having to fight Marco Huck multiple times. It's really, really hard, man. The politics around being away without a good story, really, really hard. So that's, that, that would be my answer to that. I think it's good for growth, mental and spiritual growth. But I also understand it's high risk because you can fall off a cliff over there. Right, slowly getting there. Question from Ryan Greenham. Do I expect Joshua to use his size against Usyk? And do I think that would be beneficial? Uh, Usyk would have prepared for that. Usyk's had that his whole, like his whole career. This guy's had to tussle with juggernauts like Joe Joyce, um, wrestle monsters like Chisora. The problem Joshua has is how high his hips are. So that leaning on someone helps when your hips are low enough that you can essentially pull the other guy with you as you lean into them. That's when that weight advantage counts. 
Josh's hips are so high that for Usyk, it's just like, yeah, all right. And I just, I'll, I'll literally just, I'll just accept the contact and spin you around because you don't have a low enough center of gravity to compete with me. I would like to see him use some physicality, but if you've seen him in Saudi, he doesn't look as big as he's been before, which tells me they want him to be more mobile. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get the Joshua we saw in Ruiz too. I hope we don't. I have a feeling that's what we're going to get for part of the fight and then you'll see Joshua start steaming in. I'd like to see him incorporate a lot of the stuff Garcia teaches around lead uppercuts and throwing shots that surprise people, doubling up on on your power hand, for example, all those sorts of things. I'd like to just see that punch variety that should hopefully offset Usyk's timing. But I just don't, I don't see physicality being a factor here because it should have been in the first fight. But Usyk, by the end of that fight, Usyk was the one that was just like handling the physicality better than Joshua, which should be another red flag. Final question is from Dan P. He doesn't like me using his official name and he doesn't like, he, he can't be affiliated publicly, but it's okay. I'll still answer his question. And he asks, just to paraphrase, are there too many belts in boxing? And is having this many belts actually good for boxing? Oh, Jesus Christ. So we have two problems, right? Let's say the heavyweight division. Yes, there are nominally too many belts, but they're all tied up. So the aim of having many belts was to create more paydays. It hasn't created paydays. What it's done is it's concentrated power in the hands of a few. Joshua, Canelo, uh, who else has got a load of belts? Uh, smaller Charlo, Josh Taylor. Uh, what else are we looking at undisputed? Devin Haney. All of these guys are basically just holding these belts, right, for supposed super paydays. So everyone else is starving while they wait for the opportunity. We need to scatter the belts again immediately. And then that's when we get more fights that make sense and more people make money. So having more belts would make sense if the belts were freely available. But our desire for these unifications and undisputed tell us that we only want one belt. So the fans want one belt. Boxing wants more belts because it can create more world championship fights and make more money. How this resolves itself, I don't know. But eventually fans are going to get bored of titles. It's like, look, if Fury vacated everything today and said he'd fight the winner of Joshua Usyk, that's still undisputed in most people's eyes, regardless of the belts. In fact, Fury could vacate, the winner on Saturday could vacate, and they'd still fight for undisputed as far as we were concerned. It's still the biggest fight in the game. So the belts are almost becoming irrelevant. As as a wise man once said, when when everything's a title, nothing's a title. So that's how I'd look at it. I'd take a step back and I'd say, right, let's really analyze this and go, how do you make boxing more appealing? You have one champion and that guy has to defend his belt four times a year. If he can't defend it, the belt goes vacant and there should be defined dates when this happens. That's all. You'll get a, you'll get a lot more traction at that point. People will start taking it seriously. Until then, nah, not for me. Whew, I, God, I don't even know how long that was, by the way. But listen, thank you to everyone who fired questions. And I actually enjoyed that because it was one of those I said, let me just do no research, go off the top of the head and I can at least find out where my weaknesses are. But I'm going to do another one of these pretty soon, um, as always. And when I put the call out for questions, just, yeah, questions can be about almost anything. I mean, I will tackle almost anything. So 
Thank you to the guys who asked the questions. And if you haven't already, listen to the Joshua Usyk breakdown episode as well. We're going to just drop two in 24 hours. So you guys have got that content for the week. Take care, guys.